Let us give our attention to God's word now this morning as we turn in the book of Job. We're going to be looking at Job chapter 38, Job chapter 39, and Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. So 38, 1 through 40, verse 5. That's on page 443 of the ESV Pew Bibles. And we are coming to a close to this sermon series through the book of Job. Started last June, and we have, Lord willing, two Sundays left. So one of the God speeches this morning, another one uh, the week after that, and finally Job 42, restoration. Before we go to God's word, let's have a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. As always, when we approach your word, we ask that you would show us the meaning of this passage. We want to understand what's going on, what you are saying. And then, Father, also help us to apply your word to our lives so that we don't simply hear it and then walk away and forget it, but that we would hear it and that by the power of your spirit it would penetrate into our hearts and be a part of our, our sanctification and our sanctifying process. Father, I pray these things in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've all heard of the term holistic. We've heard of that. It is the belief that the parts of something are interconnected and can be explained or addressed only by or with reference to the whole. So if we're going to look at not just one part of something, we're going to look at all the parts in order to, to address it. For example, if someone asks the question, how, how am I to feel better? The question of wellness. How, how is one to, to feel good and, and feel better? Someone might say, well, it's, it's all about sleep. If you don't get enough quality sleep at night, there's no way you're going to feel better the next day. Another person might come along and say, well, sleep is good, but really it comes down to nutrition. Uh, what you put in your body matters. I know that much. And somebody else might refer to, to, to something else, and they might say something else. But a holistic approach would address that question of wellness by looking at all the parts. They would say, yes, you need to get enough sleep. Yes, you need uh, a good diet and nutrition. Maybe some supplements and vitamins. Yes, you need to exercise. Yes, you need to stimulate your brain. Your brain. Yes, you need to interact socially with friends. You can't simply hang out in your basement and uh, stream your favorite comedy for the third time over and over again. You need to be around some people. Don't be a hermit. This is all part of the, the holistic answer to wellness. It's not just one thing. It's all these things. That's holistic. In chapters 38 and 39, God gives Job a holistic answer. Job has been making speeches throughout the book of Job, along with his three friends, and then finally Elihu at the end. And now, God speaks. God does not answer one-dimensionally. God answers Job by telling him that God is God and Job is not. Yes, that's true, but he doesn't stop there. Sometimes when Job chapters 38 and 39 are preached, they are presented as a tour through creation 
interspersed with questions by God asking Job, can you do that? It is that. We're going to see that, but it is also much more than that. This is a holistic answer that goes much deeper than simply asking questions about various animals. So, just how deep does does Job's holistic answer go? Let's, Let's find out. This is Job 38, one of the longest recorded speeches of God, continual speeches of God in the Bible. In fact, I think this is the longest one. 38 verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and don't further and here you shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the past of its home? You know, for you were born then, and and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the, the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they are fulfilled? That they fulfill. Then do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? 
Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the burrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys, valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse of his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley, he, he paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. It is, by, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? It is at your command, it is, at, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer, twice, but I will proceed no further. God is going to speak twice to Job. Once here in 38 and 39, and again in 40 and 41. So there are two God speeches, and that's why we can't break this up. That's not, we're taking, that's not why we're only taking one chapter this Sunday and another chapter next Sunday. We're not breaking up these God speeches. This is the first one. And one thing we need to keep in mind as we make our way through these God speeches is to remember the context. Why are they here? Why, all of a sudden, do we have these God speeches at the end of the book of Job? To answer that question, we need to ask what came before them. What's the immediate context? Well, throughout the entire book of Job, we've been building up to these God speeches. We've been building up to the end and then ultimately to the restoration. But, but these have been a long time coming. And what's come before them have been Job speaking over and over again throughout the book, throughout several chapters, as well as his friends. But it's mostly Job. And remember, as Job spoke through this entire book, he crossed a line. We've talked about that. Yes, Job is upright and blameless. 
He is uh, someone that is, has not deserved the suffering in the sense that his three friends thought he deserved it, but in the process of lamenting and crying out to God, he crossed the line. He accused God of a couple things. Number one, mismanaging the whole situation. And number two, he accused God of injustice. Remember, these were the two claims that he had made. God somehow must have made a mistake, and if I could have my day in court and present my case, then everything would be cleared up. So mismanagement, and number two, injustice. Somehow, Job received this suffering that in his mind he should not have deserved, has deserved, therefore God has not given him justice. So these two chapters are answering the charges. These, these two first chapters, 38-39, are answering their first charge about mismanagement, and then next week we'll look at the one that answers the charge of a lack of justice. Now, God could have answered Job differently. He chooses to answer in these God speeches. speeches. He could have done it a much simpler way, couldn't he? He could have just showed up and said, Job, let me explain to you what happened. You see, what happened was, oh, a few months ago, I was talking about you, and I was saying how you were a blameless and upright man, and how Satan should consider you, Job, that's you. And then he challenged me and said, the only reason he worships you and pays attention to you is because of what you have done for him. So Satan said, if you take everything away, then he will surely curse you to your face. So I said, okay, and I gave him permission. And that's why all this bad stuff has happened to you. That's why all your kids were killed in a single day. That's why you've lost all your wealth, everything, all your possessions. That's why you've been sitting in excruciating pain for these last several months, thinking you're about to die. That explains it all. And just he, he could have just given Job the insider information on, on what happened in that initial confrontation. But he didn't. He didn't answer him by explaining what happened. Instead, he decides to answer him through the use of multiple questions and illustrations. This is the key to unlocking the God's speeches. God is answering Job through the use of multiple questions and illustrations. Therefore, when God speaks, he's not only issuing challenge questions, that's what we're going to call those, those multiple questions we see throughout here, those are challenge questions. Yes, on the surface, he's asking, uh, can you do this? And Job has to answer, no, I can't do it. So he's issuing the challenge questions, but also each of the sections, whether it's aspects of creation or whether it's different animals, he's also giving Job and us an illustration. He's, he's giving us an illustration that points to the truth about the complexities of this world in which suffering exists and simultaneously serves the purposes of God. It's a holistic answer. So let's begin. Verse 1, the opening address. God, the Lord Yahweh, answered Job out of the whirlwind. It could also be translated as tempest, a wild, violent, uncontrollable storm. We call this a storm theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. Remember, God is spirit. He is invisible. He doesn't have a body like you and I do. He is invisible. He is spirit. But every once in a while, God so chooses to reveal himself visibly to his created creatures. And he does so often in a storm. So we call that a storm theophany. 
a, a, a visible manifestation of God in a storm. It happens in several places throughout Scripture. Here's one of the other places, Exodus 19, 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So this is another example. God on Mount Sinai after the Exodus addresses the people from a storm theophany. Here it is again. God shows up and addresses Job out of a storm theophany. I think as, as New Testament Christians, as, as the church, we're kind of in this mode of thinking that, that God is, you know, in general, this kind of meek and, and humble, and, you know, Jesus came in weakness, and, and you know, we're turn, turn the other cheek. But we also need to remember God is powerful. This, this storm theophany is intimidating. Anytime you see a divine power with, with fingertip control over thunder and lightning and, and the weather and the, and the billowing clouds, this is intimidating. So God is not showing up as a, as a meek uh, kind of counselor who, who kind of asks permission to speak into Job's life. He comes in full force of God with all the power and the display of divinity. Verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? This is the question that serves as the basis for God's first speech. Job has uttered words without knowledge. Job, the finite creature, has presumptuously thought that he knows better than God. And now God, the infinite, divine creator, who knows all things, is showing up to address Job. Verse 3, dress for action like a man. You might see a footnote in the ESV. It says, gird up your loins. That's a, that's a a phrase that means gather up your, your clothing and, and gird them around in the Old Testament. Uh, men would gird up their loins or gather up the, the bottom part of their garment and, and kind of tie it off in their belt if they were getting ready for action or for running or for battle. They didn't want to be tripping over that. So gird up your, act, gird up your loins. I will question you and you make it known to me. Yeah, that's an understatement. Not just one or two questions. Depending on how you divide this, depending on how you divide the words of God, between 55 and 70 questions God is asking Job over the next four chapters. Boom, 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 one after another. Question, 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 question. Why? Well, again, God is here to address Job, not the other way around, so God will ask the questions. God is calling Job to account for himself, not the other way around. God does not have to answer to Job. God wants Job to see clearly, and by using questions rather than simply talking to him and explaining things, God is forcing the answers to pass through Job's mind and out his mouth. You see, it's one thing just to have something explained to us, but if we have to work through it ourselves, if, if we have to think about it and arrive at the answer ourselves and then speak it, then, then it's going to hit a little harder. So questions, we're going to call these challenge questions and illustrations. For example, the question in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job has to answer, I wasn't there. But he also has to answer, but you were. Do you see what's going on? God is forcing Job to recognize that he is not God. God is God. Uh, verse 8, who, who shut in the sea with doors? I did not, but you did. 
I'm not God, you are. Over and over again. Not just once, multiple times. God is hammering in this message. Job, you're not God, I am. God wants Job to feel it. He wants to internalize the answers and confess them. So, creation of the world. Now we're going to move on to each of these sections. Creation of the world, 4 through 11. I was the one who created the world, not you. Surely you know. This is sarcasm. Right, Job? It was me, right? It was me. It was me, not you. God is not afraid to use sarcasm in these answers. It pops up probably two or three times where he makes a statement that is just dripping with sarcasm. God is also saying that, yes, I created the world and everything in it, and all of it deserves shouts of joy. The morning stars and sons of God in this context most likely refer to the angels. They were present and were witnessing God's creative work, and they were shouting joyful praise. We also remember the repeated pronouncement of God throughout the days of creation, and God saw that it was good. All of it. All of creation. Now, is this world stained by sin and its influence? Yes. Has God's character or his nature or his perfect righteousness diminished at all? No. No, it has not. Now that sin has entered the world, does that mean that God's eternal purposes are no longer good? No. And God's eternal purposes include the presence of evil. In other words, the presence of of sin and evil in the world do not distract from the goodness and the perfection of God's eternal decrees and purposes. And the angels are still praising God for his eternal, unchanging decrees and purposes. And so should we. So the challenge question in this first section is, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job is forced to answer, I was not there, but you were. That's the challenge question. And then the, the God answering Job by way of illustration is this. I created the world knowing that there would be evil and suffering, and all of it serves my eternal decrees and purposes to glorify myself. Evil and suffering are part of my grand redemptive plan, and it has been that way from the beginning. Is this helpful for Job? Is, is this help answer his questions? Absolutely. Yes. Because what is the main topic that has been addressed in the book of Job? God and suffering. Limits of the sea, 8 through 11. Again, God is saying that he was the one who created the sea. Marked off where the sea would, would end and where land would begin. So God created the land-sea boundaries. That's the challenge question. Who shut in the sea? Who prescribed limits for it? I did not. You did, God. You did that. And then what about the illustration? Well, if you recall from earlier in Job, the sea, the ocean, the the chaotic waters of the sea are often used metaphorically in the Bible to talk about evil and chaotic forces that stand opposed to God and God's good created order. For example, Job 7.12. Job asks this question, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? Job is saying, "Am Am I evil that you need to come after me like you appear to be doing with all this suffering? So, and of course, God is not against Job. But God has decreed that evil will exist in the world, and he used it for his self-glorifying purposes. Remember what decrees are. Let's go to our old friend, Westminster Shorter Catechism, Q&A number 7. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan, based on the purpose of his will, 
by which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that happens. And part of those decrees include suffering and evil. Now somebody might raise a hand of objection at this point and say, okay, I, I get it. I, I hear you, Pastor. I, I hear you that um, God's decrees are perfect and I know that he uses them to glorify yourself, but hmm, there's a lot of evil and suffering in this world. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of death. And there, there must be another way. I, I, I get all that, but don't you think there's another way for God to reach that end goal of glorifying himself other than using all this evil and suffering? A way that doesn't include it? Well, as soon as we ask that question, we are right back to where we were last week. Remember last week, we talked about how we were ill-equipped to run the universe? And we all got kind of a chuckle out of that. I remember I said, can we get there? Can, can we all agree that we're not equipped to run the universe? And we all kind of chuckled out. Well, as soon as we ask the question, isn't there a way that God can do that without using suffering and evil? We're, we're right there. We're acting presumptuously. We're saying, let me help you out, God. I, I know you're perfect, but it just seems like I can come up with a better way of glorifying yourself than the way you've come up with. And, and I'm going to include no evil and suffering whatsoever. Do you see what's happening there? We're not to, to question God and, and his decrees. We can't run the universe better than God. So for limits of the sea, the challenge question, who shut the sea, who set the boundaries? You did, Lord, I did not. The, the answer by way of illustration is this. The, the sea, evil and suffering, God says, I'm using for my purposes, but I have set limits on it. I've set boundaries on it. It's not running around unchecked. The next section, verses 12 through 15 Daylight and darkness. On the one hand, God is telling Job that he is the one who causes the sun to rise in the morning and dawn. Have you challenged question? Have you commanded the morning? No, I have not, but you have, Lord. But it's also symbolic language for God's ability to bring an end to evil and wickedness at the right time. When the sun rises, it's like taking hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. If you think about a a picnic, you might go on a, on a family picnic and you lay out the blanket and everybody sits down and they eat their sandwiches and their, their Doritos and their, their cans of pop or whatever you're going to have for your picnic and then you're done and you go up and you grab the blanket and you just give it one of these, you snap it, you shake it and all the crumbs and, and everything else go flying off. That's the, the imagery. God is saying, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to give the earth a shake and I'm going to shake the wicked out of it. Verse 14, just like a smooth lump of clay is pressed with a seal and afterwards has contours and bumps. You know, think of a, a wax seal or a clay seal and then you, you press the, the seal into it. What was smooth now has ridges and bumps and contours. It's the same thing God says. That's what light does. As light is shined, it reveals contours, bumps, edges, ridges. If you think about, uh, if you've ever been outside when the, when the dawn breaks out of a really dark night, I remember I was, was camping once, way away from the city lights, it was an extremely dark, moonless night, and I happened to wake up 
right before the sun came up, and I just, as it came up, all of a sudden, black became black and gray, and then black and gray became shapes and outlines and shadows, and all of a sudden, then I could see all these contours. That's what he's describing. He's saying, on the day, I will bring everything to light. All the, the evil and darkness that it's, that's hiding, that's in the shadows, that they can't be reached, I will reach it. On the day that I bring my light, evil will not continue forever. So the answer, by way of illustration, is every time you see the sun rise in the morning, you can be assured that God will bring an end to evil and wickedness in this world. Evil thrives in darkness, but the sunrise is coming. Each new day that we experience is a promise from God that evil will not continue forever. It's here now. It serves the purposes of God, but it will not be here forever. 16 through 18, death, the springs of the sea, the recesses of the deep, gates of death, gates of deep darkness. All of that language describes the ultimate enemy, which is death. The challenge question, do you have all knowledge of death and how it serves my purposes? Job is forced to answer, no, but you do. Declare if you know all this. There's some more of that sarcasm. So the, the answer by way of illustration is, I am Lord over death. I am Lord over the power of death. You need not fear it, Job. Again, comforting words. That's an answer. That's something that Job had been struggling with. Verses 19 through 21, good and evil. Light and darkness. In the Bible, light and dark are used to describe good and evil, wickedness and righteousness. Jesus uses light and dark language all the time in that manner, so it is here. The challenge question, do you know where light and darkness, in other words, do you know where good and evil come from? No, I don't. But you do, God. I have divine and exhaustive knowledge of good and evil. Nothing is hidden from me. That's what he's teaching him by way of illustration. And then some more sarcasm. You know, you were born then. Right? The number of your days is great, Joe. Sarcasm from God. 22 through 30 is about the weather. This is a long section asking Job questions about the weather. And we had some of this in the Elihu speeches as well. We saw this earlier. The, the challenge question on the surface, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? No, but you have, God. And there's other questions about the weather. But then by way of illustration, he's saying, God is creator and is in control of all aspects of creation, including the weather. And he uses it for his purposes. And we, we might wonder, why do they continually come back to the weather? I mean, you, this is a long section right here, and then later on we're going to see it in verses 34 through 38. He's going to talk about the weather again. We saw this in chapter 36. We saw this in chapter 37. It seems like of all the things, God talks about weather a lot. And the Elihu speeches talks about weather a lot. Now, why, how is that an answer to Job? How is, why is that important? Remember Job 1, 18 through 19. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of your house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Do you think that Job, who lost all of his children in one day as a result of an act of weather, might find the fact that God is assuring him over and over again that he is Lord over even the weather and that it serves his purposes and that Job can trust him with the ultimate outcome? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why it shows up as often as it does. 31 through 33, celestial bodies. God created the stars and the planets and set the ordinance or the laws over the, the celestial bodies that, that govern the stars and the planets and the galaxies. So the surface level, the challenge question, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? No, but you do, God. And then the answer by way of illustration, the far reaches of the universe are not out of reach for God. God is assuring Job, nothing is beyond my reach. Nothing in the universe is too far away that it's outside of my control. Likewise, Job, what's happening to you is not too far. My, my arm is not too short to reach and to, to, to have command over your situation. Uh, verses 34 through 38, command of the weather. So there's a few examples of God commanding and controlling the weather. Very similar challenge questions as before, so we don't need to go over it again. Same illustrative point. God is greater, he's in control of creation, and he uses the weather for his purposes. Then animals. Uh, starting at verse 39 and to the end of this chapter and then really to the end of chapter 39. So from here on out, it's just animals. So far it's been inanimate creation. Now it's going to be uh, creation with life. We begin with lions in 39 through 41 who show us a picture of suffering for survival. One dies so another may live. That's talking about the, the prey, the predator. The, the lion goes out, brings back food. In other words, another animal that's died so that the cubs can eat. And the ravens as well. So the challenge question is, can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions? No, but you do, God, through predator and prey. But the, the teaching by way of illustration is suffering has a purpose. Even suffering and death. Even bloodshed has a purpose. One animal has died. There's, there's this kind of gruesome death of being torn apart and eaten and, and bleeding out. But that's food for a young cub that needs to grow and live. 39, 1 through 4, a mountain goat. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you know the time? And you see that repeated emphasis on timing. The challenge question, do you know the designated times for such things as birth? No, but you do, God. But the illustration teaching is God has ordered all things for a time. There is a time for suffering, a time for lifting up, a time for birth, a time for death. Again, he's speaking to Job. He's answering him with this holistic answer. There's a time for suffering. You're going through it right now. And there's a time for lifting up. It's coming. It's right around the corner. Verses 5 through 8, a wild donkey. God is the one who has let the wild donkey go free. When you look upon this animal that's wild and untamed, who can run anywhere he desires, God did that. God set him free. He granted his freedom. The challenge question, are you, are you the one that gave this animal its freedom? No, but you are. The teaching by way of illustration is, you cannot free yourself, Job. God is the one 
who grants relief. God is the one who sets people free. So to personally talk to him, God is saying, I've not made a mistake in binding you, of restricting you with this suffering, and I will release you when I'm ready. 9 through 12, a wild ox. This is not a farm animal. This is not the ox that we think of when we think of uh, you know, an ox treading and, and carrying a yoke or, or plowing a field. This is the wild ox. This was uh, an ox that had a reputation for being ex- exceedingly strong and powerful. Uh, it was measured at its shoulders six feet across. Okay, very, very wide, stout, powerful animal. Not domesticated, dangerous. In fact, in Psalm 22, David talks about being saved from the mouth of the lion and from the wild ox. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So it's paired up with a lion, also a very ferocious animal. So this is a strong, powerful, dangerous animal. The challenge question is, can you tame the strong wild ox so that it serves your purposes? Job has to answer, no, I can't manage one of these animals and and get it to pull a a plow. But you can, God. And the answer by way of illustration is this. God is the only one who can take something strong and powerful and dangerous and make it serve his purposes. Like a band of Sabian raiders who steal and strike people down with the sword. That happened to Job. Like physical disease and severe illness. God is saying, trust me. Trust me when I actively use something strong and dangerous and powerful and use it for my purposes. 13 through 18, ostrich. The bird is given wings, but it cannot fly. It leaves the eggs in the ground where they're extremely vulnerable. Anybody can just walk by and crush them. The bird does not give much care to her young. And it says God has not given this animal wisdom or understanding. This is a dumb bird. It is not smart. And yet, the ostrich can run faster than the horse and rider. The challenge question is, God has made this this dumb, fast bird, is that... And there really isn't an explanation for for why he's made it that way. And, and, And so there's really not even a challenge question, it's just stating something. And so the illustration is this, don't expect to have everything figured out, Joe. In, in the midst of, of going through this and trying to find answers, look, God, God is responsible for making some things that from our perspective, because we don't have his divine blueprint knowledge, they're just, a, they're just an enigma. They're a paradox, like the ostrich. Stop trying to figure everything out. He may explain it all day, but in the meantime, you need to understand that because you are not God, you're not going to, to make sense of everything. 19 through 25, the horse. The horse is powerful and designed for war. It strikes fear in the hearts of the enemy. It is fierce and terrifying. It charges into battle. It knows no fear. It's not afraid of of arrows of the sword or or the spear. It charges into battle. In the ancient Near East, the horse on the battlefield was the ultimate weapon. Some people have compared it, they've said it's like the nuclear, we- nuclear bomb of its day. That might be going a little too far, but I think we get the point. There, there was nothing greater, either on a, in terms of a mounted uh, you know, platform for riding, as just a horse and rider, or as a chariot. 
paired up with a chariot. A chariot would have a driver and then would have another, usually archer, that could shoot in any direction and it could travel very quickly and change directions. It was almost impossible to take out. It was very deadly, very effective. So this horse strikes fear into the hearts of the enemy. The challenge question is, did you make the horse joke? No, but you did, God. And the illustration is the horse here being a symbol of powerful destruction. You cannot win against this terrifying power on your own. You cannot beat disease. You cannot beat death. You must trust in the one who is greater than that dark power. And then finally, the hawk and the eagle, 26 to 30. We have some impressive birds of prey. But at the command of God, they capture another animal, they tear it to pieces, and they give it to their young. And the young ones, very descriptive, suck up the blood. Their nests are filled with the bones of other animals. The challenge question is, did you command the hawk and the eagle to capture the prey? The answer is no, but you did. But God answering Job by way of illustration is this, death, violence, and bloodshed. Don't try to remove all those things, Job. Don't, don't try to, don't be in a hurry to get rid of those things in, in this life. Because without death, there can be no life. It's kind of a bookend to the, to the lion at the beginning with the predator and the prey. The, don't, uh, don't try to separate those out. They're so intertwined that if you remove one, you're going to remove the other. So Job can trust God because God knows what he's doing. Finally, the concluding word, chapter 41 through 5, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, he who argues with God. We don't ever want to be arguing with God. He who argues with God, let him answer it. So a fault finder, someone who faults, uh, finds fault with how God is running the world. Let me help you out, God. I, I see this happening over in this part of the world, or I see this happening in this person's life. Why did you do that? That's a fault finder. Criticizing God. God. Armchair quarterbacking God. That's a fault finder. Job had made a mistake by arguing against God and now God is calling him out. And here's Job's answer. I am a small account. I am a small account. This is another way of saying you are greater than I am. Now, what was it that Elihu was trying to tell Job throughout the entire speeches of Elihu? What was the Roman number one banner heading? God is greater than man. And then all the supporting points underneath it. God is greater than man. It looks like Job got the message. I am a small account. You are greater than me, God. He's confessing that. And then the rest of Job's response is saying, I'm going to stop talking now. I have nothing else to say. Which means Job is learning. God's purposes are inscrutable. They're impenetrable. They're unfathomable. God is greater than man, therefore we are in no position to question God's purposes and methods. This is God's holistic response. And we expect nothing less. And this has been building for, for 38 chapters. We've been waiting for God's answer. 
wouldn't you expect to hear a little bit more than, um, I made a lion, can you do that? Right? This, this is more than just the challenge questions. No, it's that. It's that, but it's much more than that. It's holistic. It's a brilliant response. Each time God issues a challenge question, he is forcing Job to admit that God is God and Job is not. Over and over and over and over and over. God just pelts him with these challenge questions. No, but you can. No, but you do. No, but you are. He's learning through repetition God is greater than man. So at one level, that's there. That's part of the holistic answer. But at the same time, each response is also addressing a unique facet about how evil and suffering fit into this world. They serve God's purposes. God has set limits on evil. One day it will be removed from this world. Life and birth and death and dying, they all have a time and a place. And these are set by God. Furthermore, God's speeches to Job also address his particular situation. Job is bound right now, restricted, hedged in by sickness and disease and pain. But God will set him free, like the wild donkey, in his time. Job has experienced devastating loss when the wind came and struck the four corners of his eldest son's house and destroyed all his children in a single blow. God assures Job that even the weather is under God's lordship control, and he can trust him with the ultimate outcome. Job is completely torn down and in the darkest place he has ever been, but a new day is coming. Dawn will break and shine upon Job when the time is right. Aren't we glad that God gives Job a holistic answer? Aren't we glad this is more than just um, challenge questions about animals and, and the dark? As good as that is, there's more. God's holistic answer not only forces Job to acknowledge that God is greater than man, it also gives Job some answers to life's most difficult questions about evil and suffering and how they serve God's purposes, while at the same time, it addresses God, Job's very personal experiences of loss and deep affliction because it's a holistic answer. But remarkably, these God speeches serve us at one more level because they point us to Jesus Christ. Evil and suffering have been a part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning. When God looked upon his creation and pronounced it very good, he knew that Adam would sin and that his eternal son, Jesus, would be sent and suffer unjustly on the cross. Just as the sunrise rids the earth of darkness and shadows, so Jesus will return and rid the earth of all evil, wickedness, and rebellion with finality. Jesus is the one who is going to pick up the earth and shake the skirts of it and shake the wickedness and evil out of it. As terrible as death is, and as much as we would like to God to get rid of it, God uses it for his purposes. Jesus died a real physical death so that we can be brought to new and eternal life. Death is necessary and God knows what he's doing. Jesus' resurrection is victorious over death. Jesus commanded the winds and the waves. You remember? 
which is terrifying to us, and it was terrifying to his disciples, but it also testified to his divinity. Only God controls the weather. God used the celestial bodies to guide the Magi, or wise men, to Bethlehem to view the newborn Jesus. When the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There is a time for everything, a time for Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and coming again. And there is a time for our birth and death, and there is a time for our spiritual new birth. Jesus said, you must be born again. Like the wild donkey, Jesus is the one who sets people free. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Like the wild ox, God can and does make strong and exceedingly powerful things serve his purposes. The Roman Empire, as great as it was, played their part in the trial and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, according to God's eternal plan. Like the ostrich, God often acts in ways that we don't understand, presenting a paradox or an enigma. Jesus Christ, crucified, was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The cross is perceived as weakness, yet the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's a paradox. Like the horse, we cannot win against the terrifying and powerful destroying force of sin, We must put our trust in the one who has power over sin, Jesus. Not only is this a holistic answer, it is also a holy answer that points us to the Son of God. We cannot find fault with God because God is God. He has divine knowledge, we do not. God is greater than man. I hope that message came across loud and clear. He has eternal purposes that include evil and suffering, But if we try to remove those from the world, it's like pulling on the string at the bottom of a sweater and the whole thing will unravel. No suffering and and pain and death, then we have no cross. We have no crucifixion. We have no cross and crucifixion. We have no forgiveness of sins. We have no resurrection of Jesus Christ. We We have nothing. We can't pull evil and suffering out of this world. God will do that in his time. We are to place our faith and trust in the one who knows all, the one who has divine knowledge, the one whose purposes include salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not believed on Jesus Christ, do so without delay. Put your faith and trust in the one who has power over sin, death, life. Place your trust in the one who has given his life on your behalf, who has taken the payment for your sin on himself on the cross and has granted, upon faith, his righteousness to the one who believes upon him. So when you stand before God, God does not see your sin and your wickedness and your evilness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is by faith, not good works. It is by faith. We are to trust God as believers. We are to trust God when we experience pain and loss in this life. Jesus is Lord over all. He will set you free and bring the dawning of a new day in his time. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words of God. The entire scripture are your words to us, breathed out by the Holy Spirit and inspired. But to read these words of address from from you to this man Job who is suffering gives us so many answers. Father, we thank you for being Lord over all, and we thank you for being Lord over us. 
Help us to walk by faith and to trust you at all times. Amen.